morning, everyone. My name is Anna. We are going to be reading from Exodus 18 today. I'm going to give you a minute to turn there. And we'll be reading all of Exodus 18. All right, beginning in verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all of that what God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one of them was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he had encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. (laughs) Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake all of the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, And Aaron came with all of the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Then Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for all the people and said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and your people with you will certainly wear yourself out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them known the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people men who fear God and are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. It will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Well, good morning. All right, I tell you to turn to Exodus 18, but you're already there, right? Yeah, so, hey, if you don't know me, my name's JT. I am one of the pastors here at Freshwater. It's so good to see you this morning. And so before anything else, I got to say, happy Mother's Day. Yeah, it's a good day, right? No one's excited about Mother's Day. I'm excited about Mother's Day. We've, Mother's Day is a big deal at Freshwater because we have a lot of people out right now because they just had babies. We have a lot of people that are getting ready to have babies. We've got moms here that are with their babies that have had babies. And so, um, man, we just got people from all over the place. I think, I think we still have like seven or eight at least people that are pregnant. Is that right? And eight months ago, we talked about how we had seven or eight people in our church pregnant. And a year before that, we had seven. So that's just how it goes at Freshwater. And so uh, Mother's Day is a big deal. And I just want to apologize. Normally on Mother's Day, one of our His Kids directors brings everybody out um, flowers and a little gift and all the kids hand them out, right? But Jessica, one of our His Kids directors, is home with COVID right now. And her other his kids director, her husband just had surgery and he's been in bed and she's been taking care of a fourth kid. And so um, there's just been a lot going on. And then a couple of our deacons have COVID right now. I'm just impressed that you guys showed up when we have like 
half of our leaders, it seemed like, have COVID. That's, a, that's an exaggeration. But more, we've had more people with COVID right now than we've had this entire time. And you're still here today. So um, if you're worried about it, wear your mask, social distance, and we'll be okay, right? But anyway, all right, let's jump into what we're going to talk about today. Um, I'm going I'm to start with a question. Um, if I had to ask you, what, what is the main purpose of your job? How hard would it be for you to tell me what the main purpose is? Do you think it'd be fairly easy? What, now listen, it doesn't matter what you do, whether you're a teacher or a nurse, or listen, today especially, you're a mom, that is a job, that is a big job if you stay home and you're a mom. Whether you build things with your hands or work with your mind, what, whatever it is, whatever you do, do you think you could boil what you do, basically what you do down to one sentence? Right, not overcomplicate it, just, just, build, just, just narrow it down to one sentence. For example, I used to be in pharmaceutical sales before I was a pastor, right? I was a sales guy. Um, and I would say my job before was to convince doctors that my drug was better than the competition to drive sales and to help patients. That's it, right? That's one of the reasons I wanted to be a pharmaceutical salesman, so I could have a product that I genuinely thought helped people. And that, it's pretty simple. I asked a teacher in our church. I just texted this person. I said, hey, just sum up for me what you do in one sentence. And this person got back to me really quickly, and I was impressed. He, sa he said, use daily opportunities to slowly build relationships to help instill knowledge, confidence, and future success. It's pretty good, right? He came back with that in like 30 seconds. I was impressed. So I think for most of us, for most of us, if you just put a little bit of thought into it, I'm guessing you could come up with something pretty quickly if somebody asked you what you do. Like, what's the purpose of what you do in particular? Now, what if I asked you, what is your main purpose as a follower of Christ? Could you narrow that one down quickly to one sentence? Let's say, what, what's your purpose as a follower of Christ? I'm talking about people who actually believe today. What, what, what's your purpose as a follower of Christ? Do you think you'd be able to rattle it off? Because here's the thing. I think our answers could kind of be somewhat all over the map. In general, I think they would come back to the same place, right? But there's a lot of right answers there, I think. And, and let me give you one that I wrote down. And this is by, by no means official. I didn't spend a ton of time thinking about this. Just off the top of my head, if somebody asked me, what, what's, what's our purpose as Christians? Um, this is what I wrote. We are to live for and tell people of the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ so they might be saved. And then when they are, as the family of God, disciple them into what it means to be obedient followers of Jesus. Right? Does that seem fair? There's lots of other things that could have been said about love, about God, about like, oh, there's all these other things. But if you just kind of narrow it down, I think what we're supposed to do in our faith, with our faith as Christians, as disciples of Christ, is pretty straightforward, isn't it? There's a lot of things that go underneath that, but like the overall purpose is pretty straightforward. Um, well, here's the thing. I, I think Exodus, even though that was written so long ago, I think Exodus is going to show us today that, that who we're supposed to be as God's people has basically always been the same. The thing has always been the thing. So if you're, if you're new today or you haven't been with us in a while, we've been walking through the book of Exodus, and we're right in the middle of the book right now. And so where we are is the people, the, the people of God, the Israelites, have been freed from slavery in Egypt. They were enslaved to the most powerful country in the world. They, they've, they've been saved from Pharaoh's army who pinned them against the Red Sea, but then God saved them. They were, and then they were out in the desert, kind of running away, going to where God would want them, and they didn't have enough to eat, so, brought, so God literally brought bread from heaven. They woke up, and there was bread on the ground that they could eat, and they got water from a rock because they didn't have enough to drink. And now they're about to approach the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, where God's presence is literally going to come down on the mountain, and then the law of God is going to be given for the first time. The, the real covenant, the Old Testament covenant is going to be given to them for the first time, and it's going to be a really really big, big deal. It's a thing that really defined what it mean, meant to be a Jew from, from here on out. Huge things are coming in Exodus on, the, on this mountain. But before that happens, we have this chapter about the reunion of Moses with his family. And it, and it might kind of seem almost like a filler chapter until we get to the really big stuff that's coming, like the Ten Commandments, kind of a big deal, right? That's coming in the next couple weeks. Right? It might almost seem like a filler chapter, but listen to me, it's, it's not. It's not filler at all. It's a chapter that is not only extremely important for Moses and the people of Israel moving forward from this point, but it's really a chapter that, that I believe is paving the way for what, what's going to be the future of God's people and even the future of God's church, Jesus Christ's church. I think this is paving the way for that. 
So here's what we're gonna do. Today's gonna really kind of, this chapter is gonna really be broken into two parts. And so I'm gonna call the first part today, here, here's the title of the first part of the sermon, the first part of the chapter, chapter, Evangelism Through Glory. That's the first thing we're gonna be talking about. Evangelism Through Glory. And then the second part I'm gonna call, You Weren't Meant to Do This Alone. You were not meant to do this alone. So these two parts to get together, I think are gonna really pave the way and show us our purpose as individuals and even as the church, even though the church didn't exist yet. All right, so let's read, the, let's read from the first part, um, evangelism through glory. Start reading with me again in, in verse one. We're gonna read through verse seven. Chapter 18, verse one, read through verse seven with me again. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and the name of the other is Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was help, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her, two, and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other their, of their welfare and went into the tent. Okay, so what we're seeing here is pretty simple. It's Moses is being reunited with his family. And so the passage doesn't tell us, and, and Exodus didn't really tell us exactly what's happened, but I think it's pretty safe to assume that when Moses was heading back to Egypt, Zipporah went with him at least some of the way, but when, he, when it was time to go to, to Egypt, he sent her home to Midian, which is where she was from, to spend time with her father until they were done. People debate exactly what happened because scripture doesn't tell us exactly, but I think it's pretty safe to assume for a couple of reasons. One, if you remember, Moses was a wanted murderer in Egypt, wasn't he? He murdered someone. And so they were chasing him down. That's why he left Egypt originally. Like, so remember, Moses is not the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story. He was a murderer and Pharaoh was trying to kill him, so he left. And so now Moses is going back to the place where he was at one time wanted for murder to confront the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. Probably be a little bit worried about his wife and his, and his two sons. Not to mention Midian, as far as we know from 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 ancient literature, Midian and Egypt did not get along at all. Like they were at odds, right? So it might not have necessarily even been safe to bring Zipporah into Egypt because she was a Midianite. So for what, whatever reason, we don't really know for sure, but it's pretty safe to assume that he left her and the two boys at home. But now as he's traveling to Mount Sinai, Midian's not very far away. So him and Jethro may have had this plan beforehand that when I get back to this point with the people, come meet us, or he may have sent, he may have sent runners onto Egypt or onto Midian to tell them that they've left Egypt and they're on the way. For, but for whatever reason, Jethro knew where Moses was and he brought his family to come see him. And so in this passage, we see not only Moses reunited with his family, but we show the great respect he shows to his father-in-law, don't we? When he saw, sees his father-in-law, he bows to him, he kisses him, he welcomes him into the tent, and then they talk about everything that's been going on in their lives. But not only that, if you remember, and it says in the passage, Jethro is the priest of Midian, which means two things. One, Jethro didn't worship the God of the Bible, right? He was the priest of a whole different faith, a whole different religion. And two, Jethro, I think, as far as we can tell, Jethro was kind of a big deal. Because did it say he was a priest in Midian? Is that what it said? He's a priest in Midian? No, it said, he said, it said he is the priest of Midian. So, so Jethro is, is kind of a big deal. He's not just a priest, but it says he's the priest of Midian, which may have meant that that may have just been a turn of a phrase saying that he was a priest in Midian, or it could have meant like he was a big deal in Midian. He was the priest of Midian. So after the greeting, after the proper respect, what is... Do you remember from the passage, we're going to read it here in a second, but after the, the kind of formal greeting and the reunion, what's the first thing that Moses does? The first thing, almost right away, what does he do? After he kisses him, after the greeting, read in verse 8, chapter 18, verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. 
And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Keep going in verse 10. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. You know, what, what I love about this moment is in verse 1, we already saw that Jethro had heard all about what God had done in Egypt, right? So, like, he had heard about it. He had heard about what God had done for all the people of Israel against Egypt. As I've said over and over throughout this sermon series, throughout this book, is that in the end, this book is not really even about Moses and Israel. This book is about God's glory, about God's salvation of his people, about God's glory going forth. Or as I've said, God's glory is evangelizing to the world about who he is. Because if you've been with us, you know that the Egyptians know, now know about the glory of God, don't they? They know that he is God. And a lot of Egyptians even left with the Israelites. We saw a couple weeks ago that the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Edomites, they're all afraid of God now. When they hear his name, they tremble. Why? Because they saw the glory of God and what he did against Egypt, which is way more powerful than them. So now when they hear about the people of God and the glory of God, they tremble before him. They're afraid of this God. And now we're seeing Jethro. And the people of Midian, the people of Midian and Jethro have heard about the glory of God. The glory of God is going forth throughout the world, which is the point of this whole thing. God is evangelizing to the world about who he is. That the God of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not just a God, but the God. He is Lord. So Jethro's heard about this. And so he comes and gets with Moses. And then what does Moses do? Man, he can't help himself. He tells Jethro all about what his God has done. Moses tells them about Egypt and Pharaoh. He tells them about the plagues and the miracles. He talks about the pillar of smoke they follow during the day and the, the pillar of fire they followed at night. He tells them about certain death after they left Egypt, after they'd been set free, as they were trapped at the Red Sea, and how God parted the Red Sea, and they crossed on dry ground. And as soon as they got across, the waters collapsed and destroyed the most powerful army in the world. He told them about the song they sang and how they danced and rejoiced on the seashore because their God had delivered them. A bunch of slaves with no power at all, delivered from the most powerful kingdom in the world. Man, Moses couldn't help. I mean, I can just picture this moment. He couldn't help but tell Jethro all about it, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? He's finally reunited with his family, and he's just recounting all of these things that happen. But hear me. I, I know it doesn't tell us exactly in this, in this passage, but li listen, Moses wasn't just telling Jethro and his family about all the things that had happened to the people, how God had saved all the people, but Moses was telling them about how, man, God had saved him. If you remember from his song, he said, God has become my salvation. That this is very much a corporate thing, but this is a very personal thing. God saved moms and dads and childrens and friends and family. They're rejoicing because he saved all of them, but they're rejoicing because man, they've been saved and their kids have been saved and their parents have been saved. And so it's not just that everyone was saved. Moses was saved. And because Moses is saved, he's sitting here right now being able to hang out with his family and tell them this story and tell Jethro the story this time of joyful reunion because God is his salvation. And Moses just can't help to tell Jethro all about it, all about his God's glory and the things that he's done. Church, it's important that you know the gospel. I, I, I know you've probably thought about that, right? When it's important that you know the gospel. It's important that you know that, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, that he is the exact imprint of God's nature, of God's character, and he is the beautiful picture of God's plan for redemption throughout history. Right, when I say the gospel, if you don't know what that, mean, that is, it's important that, that you can, that G, one, that Jesus is the gospel. When we say the gospel, we don't mean the Bible, we don't mean church, we don't mean good things. When we say the gospel, we mean Jesus. That also means you understand the implications of Jesus' life his death, and his resurrection. That's the gospel. 
That's what 1 Corinthians 15 says is the gospel when Paul lays it out. Uh, you know what? We can add to that. We talk about this in Victory Mission all the time. We can add to that his ascension into heaven. So now that he's sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for the saints, and that one day he's going to return again to make all things new. That, that, that's the gospel story, right? The life, the death, the resurrection, and then we can add the ascension and return of Jesus Christ. It's important that we know those things, to know how God has saved people, but more importantly, how he saved his people, how he saved us. But you know what else is really important? Being able to communicate who God is to you. Not just knowing the story, but who God is to you. Because yes, God has saved all who believe in Jesus Christ in faith. That's Romans 10. If you confess you, and you believe, you will be saved. So yes, he saved all of us. But so much of the power in these truths, the strength in these truths, come alive when you can share what God has done for you in a very personal, very real way. How God brought you salvation. What God saved you from. How your God brings you hope. How not your God can be their God too. Our Savior can be their Savior too in a personal, relational way. Man, it's important. But see what happened when Moses shared these big, epic things that God did. He also shared in a very personal way how God saved him. Someone got saved. Did you catch it in a passage? Someone got saved. We saw in verses 9 through 12 that it was more than just Jethro celebrating with Moses about what God has done. But Jethro says this, blessed be the Lord. And he says, now I know, I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, the priest of another faith has now come and he's seen the glory of God. And then intimately, personally, Moses shares with him all that God has done. He's given his life to God. Not only, if that wasn't enough evidence, what does he do right after he confesses these things? He worships. He worships. How does he worship? Well, remember, the, the law has not actually come down from, on the mountain from God to Moses yet and given to the people. But already through the Old Testament, we've seen the example of sacrifice for sin, haven't we? That the penalty of sin is death. And so there's a substitute, a sacrifice is a substitute for our own blood because of our sin to stand in our place, which points to Jesus Christ, who was the sacrificial lamb, the ultimate lamb who went to the cross to stand in our place to take our penalty for sin. So that's already been established in scripture that a sacrifice is a substitute for our own sin. And so what does Jethro do? He brings a sacrifice before God. This is worship, church. This is what this is. He's worshiping for God. He brings a sacrifice before God and then gives it to God as a burnt offering. We'll talk about this a lot more when we get later in Exodus, but a burnt offering, the reason they burned it, the simple version, is it was, it was as the animal burned, the aroma rose to God. It was as if the sacrifice is, right, is raising up to God as a sacrifice to him. Make sense? That's the simple version of that. And so he gives a burnt offering. A burnt offering was not only to atone for, sin, for past sin, which it did, but was also an appeal to God for forgiveness and acceptance, peace with God. And so the priest of Midian, the leader of another religion, has seen the glory of God and has had his son-in-law witness to him, give his testimony about who God is and about his glory, and he's decided to give his life to the God of the Bible. That's a big deal. That's a big deal because I think there's people in our lives, who's, who's harder to share the gospel with than somebody in your family that you have a lot of respect for and you know is really intelligent and knows what they're talking about? Is it, is it harder? Or someone who you've, you've tried to share the gospel with before and they haven't listened again and again because they believe something different? And listen, Jethro believed something different. But man, Moses couldn't help but share the glory of God with him, who God was. And Jethro not only is like, I, I like this God, but he gives his life to him. He sacrifices to him. He worships him. And not only that, I love this. This is one of those real, real quick things you probably wouldn't catch. But Aaron, Moses' brother, who's helping lead the people, who will end up being the head of the priests, Moses and the rest of the elders from Israel, they come and eat with him. They come eat that burnt offering with him. You know, you know what is going on there? This is a confirmation that Jethro has been welcomed into the community and that he has been accepted by God's people. Jethro is now one of them. You can kind of think of it like when somebody comes in for communion at our church. 
I say, hey, if you, and if this is you today, we're so thankful that non-believers come to our church. People are just kind of trying to figure out who Jesus is. You are welcome here. Ask your questions. Spend the time that you need here. We want you to be here. We're so thankful that you're here. But we do ask you not to take communion. Why? Because one of the most holy things that we can do, reverent things that we can do, remember what Jesus Christ actually did for us. And if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, taking communion doesn't mean the same thing to you as it does to us because it's us recognizing that Jesus is our Savior. So we ask you, hey, we love you, we respect you. Could you respect us too by not taking communion if you're not a believer? Right? But what do we do? If somebody gives their life to Jesus Christ, and what's one of the first things we want to do with them? Baptize them. And then take communion with him. Have a family meal together, right? It's, it's very similar to this. Jethro has given his life to God. And so the elders come down and say, hey, let us, let us share in this meal with you. Let us share in this burnt offering with you. Welcome to the family of God. It's this beautiful picture. So as I said, the first part of this sermon, the first part of this chapter, I kind of entitled Evangelism Through Glory. Through this whole book, you may have been might may have heard me say, well, yeah, God's evangelizing about who he is, but it didn't feel real to you. Well, I hope this feels a little bit more real. Jethro, probably who would have been one of the hardest people to witness to about who their God is because he worshiped a different God and he knew what he was talking about, has seen the glory of God, has heard the testimony through Moses, and he's given his life to God. It's beautiful. Evangelism through glory. But now we have the second part. You weren't meant to do this alone. Let's read in verse 13 again. Chapter 18, verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw that what he, that he was doing, sorry, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statute of God and his laws, right? Through all this stuff, it seems to be disputes about God, his law, how they're supposed to live as godly people now, what it means to follow God. Keep going. Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. You are not able to do it alone. Listen, church, I think this passage is pretty straightforward, isn't it? I think there's a lot confusing here. So I'm guessing if we were to lead people, right, if, 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 we had to, if I had to lead you or you had to lead some of us out into the desert somewhere, do you, do you think the first thing we'd be thinking about is, man, we got to figure out kind of this judicial system to figure out disputes among the people. I don't think that would have been at the top of my list. Like food, provisions, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Where are we going? Right? But like judging people, having a judicial system in place wouldn't have been what I would have thought of. But when you get a couple million people together who are all sinful people, God's people are not. They're sinful people in need of a Savior. Amen? And you get that many people like that out there, man, there's going to be some problems. There's going to be some disputes. There's going to be some arguments. I know that we've never had arguments at Freshwater. No dispute. We've been pretty blessed that it's been pretty pretty smooth sailing, right? But even people as unbelievably godly as you, sometimes there's a dispute that comes up, right? Imagine a couple million people traveling out into the desert who are hot and thirsty and tired and hangry and all trying to figure out how to follow God together when it's all brand new to them and they don't have the Bible like we do. They haven't been given the law yet. They just have to basically trust what Moses says. So yeah, this was a pretty difficult thing. It was going badly. And Moses was basically dealing with all of it. Can you imagine that? I mean, just being, the, being a pastor sometime, I'm like, man, this is a lot of weight to carry all the time. I mean, don't hear me. I, I love it. I love what God's called me to. But sometimes it feels a lot of weight. I can't imagine what Moses must have felt. He's dealing with it all. And his father-in-law basically says to him, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? Not only is this terrible for you and far, far too much weight for you to bear, but people are standing around all day. It literally said from morning to night, sun up to sundown, standing around all day waiting to see if you're going to get to their dispute. Moses, this isn't good. Moses, this isn't good. Now, I don't know if I need to, but I feel like i got to defend Moses in this for a second. Because um, Moses was doing this because he felt responsible. And I get that, right? 
He's the one that is truly hearing from God. Like He is the mediator between God and men. And many of the disputes seem to, if we were in the passages, they seem to, to come down to how do we properly live as God's people and respond to things in a godly, lawful way. And let, let me say again, as a pastor, I totally get how Moses felt, at least in a way, right? It was way bigger than being a pastor, but um, he didn't, it came down to, he didn't want to take lightly the responsibility that God gave him, and he didn't want to push the burden off on someone else. He wanted to take care of it because God had asked him to lead the people. I get that. But Jethro, who being a priest himself, knowing what it is to lead people, could see clearly that this just simply wasn't sustainable. Moses couldn't sustain it. It wasn't going to be good for the people of God in the long run. It wasn't good for anybody. So he proposes a solution in verse 19 through 23. Read it with me one more time. Chapter 18, verse 19. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it, was, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. Turn up my mic. I had to turn up my mic so I could sniff. It's gross. I got a runny nose. Stay away from me. Okay. So, 19 through 20. Jethro says, I'm about to give you some advice, Moses, and I hope you listen to it. But if you notice, he also said, may God be with you. He's saying, I'm going to give you advice, but let God be with you. And he says, may God direct you, right? So he's not saying, don't listen to God. He's saying, but I got some advice for you. So he makes some very pointed suggestions, doesn't he? He says, here's what, here's what he really said. He said, you need to appoint men to help bear this burden with you so you can keep the thing the thing, Moses. Right? Moses needed to focus on leading the people as a whole. He needed to focus on speaking to them on behalf of God, leading them theologically, leading them spiritually. And yes, when the major disputes came back to him, he would handle those things, right? These big things that nobody else could figure out. Moses could go before God, talk to him, and then come before the people. Yeah, that's a good and right thing. But everything else, he's saying, man, give it to other men who can help you handle this, can help bear this weight. And I love how he said, appoint men who are trustworthy who aren't greedy, meaning that he said, don't take a bride, they're not greedy, and who fear the Lord. Which again, in the Old Testament in particular, fear the Lord means reverent respect, reverent awe. So yes, there's some fear because God is God, but it's also about loving God, trusting God, submitting your life to God. Fearing God was about giving your life to him and trusting him in all things. So find men who fear God and let them handle the lesser things. In other words, Moses, don't, don't do this thing alone. You're not supposed to bear all this weight alone. Not only that, Moses, not only is it going to be so much better for you to not bear all this weight alone, but it's going to be so much better for the people because they're going to have more people to guide them, to shepherd them, to, to, to teach them how to follow God. They're going to have more peace because it's not all dependent on you. They're not all waiting around hoping to get the spiritual guidance that they need when disputes come up. He's saying, Moses, there's godly people around you, your family, your people. They can help you. They should help you. Church, do you kind of see what this is, what this is kind of pointing to? Do you catch it at all? This is a very early picture of what the church is supposed to look like. Christ's church, because it's not our church, right? This is Christ's bride, the church. Christ's church is not supposed to be about one man's vision or one man's wisdom or, or capabilities or gift sets, but about the family of God all bearing the weight together so that in the church we can be more than we could ever be alone, than we could ever be if we were all trusting in one person to do it all. It's also important because, you know what? You know what's going to happen to Moses one day? What happens to him someday? He dies. 
right? And a lot of churches, when their pastor leaves or the pastor dies, man, that people don't really know how to continue on. It like almost falls apart for a time, right? And so Moses has got to learn to train up other people, to train up other people to, to lead because one day, at any moment, he could have died, but one day he's going to die. And when, well, that one day when Moses dies, does Israel fall apart? Does Israel just collapse? Because you know what? A lot of kings, when they, they haven't trained their sons well enough or whoever to take over, what goes, how does it go in the kingdom? Terribly, right? So this is not about a kingdom. This is about God's people. But when Moses dies, you know, in the end, he ended up training people up, other people to lead with him. And so it, when Moses dies, everything didn't fall apart. Joshua took over, other elders helped lead, and everything was fine. This is excellent advice from Jethro. And I believe it was from God. So in the same way, the church is not about, about, not supposed to be about one pastor's personality or gifts, but about the family of God, all giving of themselves so that we can all be more in Christ together. That's what the church is supposed to be. And you know, I also love how Jethro made the point, find men that are trustworthy, who aren't greedy, and who fear or love the Lord. You know, in ancient society, typically everything was based off of who your family was or whether you had wealth or power. But that's not how it worked here, is it? Like the, all the countries around him, Moab and Canaan and Edomite, how they were doing it was by family line or by power or by wealth. But that's not what God says. That's not what, what God says through Jethro. But that's not what Jethro says, is it? He, what's he saying? Find men of character. Find men of character. Not power, not wealth, not family line, character. It's why I, if you've been coming to Freshwater for a while, you've probably heard me say that, you know, when it comes to um, pastors at our church, people that we're going to make pastors, elders at our church, I don't care about your experience. I don't care about your ministry experience. I don't care about your education until, until I know that you desperately love God, that you desperately love God's people, and in particular that you love Freshwater Church. And then if those things are true, if you've proven your character, your love for God, godly character, then all of those things matter very much. But character matters first. And I'm talking, it's not, it's not just for pastors, right? In the end, whether a pastor or a deacon or a life group leader or a ministry leader or whatever else at Freshwater, it is first and foremost about godly character and you being a people that loves God and loves people. That's what it's supposed to come down to. Church, what, what we're seeing in this chapter is not just simply Moses being reunited with his family and Jethro giving some good advice. That's happening, but that's not what this is about. I think what we're seeing is God lay the groundwork for what it means to follow him as his people. He's showing us, listen, he's beginning to show us our purpose. Why we were placed here, what we are supposed to do, how we're supposed to live as individuals, but also as the church. And so I'll come back to it. I gave that simple definition of what it means to be a Christian at the beginning. And I said, we are to live for and tell people about the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they might be saved. And when they are saved as the family of God, not pastors, as the family of God, disciple them into what it means to be an obedient follower of Christ. Because it does say go make disciples of all nations in the Great Commission, doesn't it? But then what, what are we supposed to teach them? To obey not just make disciples, teach them to obey. As I've said before, man, a lot of times salvation's the easy part. God reaches down and he rests you, you believe in faith and it's done. Learning to walk as a Christian, learning to be godly because you want to follow God, not just to follow the rules, but to actually be a person who's striving to walk in holiness and righteousness. Now listen, that's hard. That's the hard part of our faith. Because we all love the miracle story about how I was a drug addict or a porn addict or an angry person or a greedy person or whatever it was. And then, bam, God changed me and I never wanted those things again. But raise your hand if that's your story. What, two people in the room? Praise God for miracles, right? But that's not how it works for most of us. We get saved and then that's where the, the really good and the really hard part starts. And God gave us a ch each other to walk through that. Listen, Moses couldn't help but tell Jethro about the glory of God. And through his passionate testimony, Jethro gave his life to God. Church, is that not what we're supposed to do? Is that not who we're supposed to be? To not only tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, yes and amen to that, but tell them about the amazing truths of his life, his death and his resurrection, so that people might be saved, but also to tell, the, tell people about how God saved us, who he is to you, and what he's done 
through you and for you. Listen, your testimony is important, church. Do you ever think about it? Do you ever think about what God did for you, how you'd communicate it to someone? Uh, listen, I'm not talking about some canned presentation. I've got five minutes. Ready, go. Sometimes we have five minutes to share a testimony in five minutes. That's all I'm talking about. I'm like, you're sitting down with a friend, with a family member, and the conversation opens up. Then how are you going to tell them about who Jesus is and in particular who Jesus is to you? Because we need both, right? We need to know what the Bible says. That's the most important thing. But also what he, who he is to you. A passionate retelling about what the blood of Jesus Christ, about the, cro- the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection has done to save you. Church, is that not one of the main calls, the main purposes of our lives to go make disciples of Christ? So considering this is one of the main purposes of our lives, can I just ask you, do you think you take that at all seriously? I know for some of you the answer is yes, sometimes no. Like, listen, today is not about condemnation. Romans 8.1 makes it clear that there is now no condemnation in Christ. This is not about making you feel guilty or that you're not good enough, but maybe there's some conviction. Like, I don't share the gospel of Jesus. I don't bring Jesus' name up. I don't really know how to communicate my testimony. Don't walk in condemnation. Listen, feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and think, I need to make a change, and Jesus Christ will help me make that change. The Holy Spirit, the power of God himself, the Holy Spirit is in you, church, if you're a believer. And God will help to move you where you need to go. He'll give you words to say. And as I've said in the past, with my friend who was an atheist apologist, he was so much better about communicating why he was an atheist than I was a Christian. But, but part of the reason, one piece of the reason that he got saved was because I gave him a terrible presentation of who Jesus is and I felt bad about it for 15 years until 15 years later when I didn't talk to him for almost a decade, he comes back and says, I've never been able to forget that conversation we had when we were 18. I did not do a good job. I'm not being humble. I felt, I felt guilty about how I let him down. Yet that was a piece It wasn't the reason he got saved. It was a piece that God used along the way to hold that thing in his heart that he couldn't let go of, even though he was the best atheist apologist I'd ever heard. He's genius. He's brilliant. But his wisdom was nothing compared to the love of Jesus Christ. His knowledge was nothing compared to the glory of God. You can share these things, church. Listen, I asked you about the purpose at your job. Do you take that at all seriously? The thing that you're supposed to do at your job, the thing you're meant to do at your job, do you know what that is? Do you do it daily? Do you take it pretty seriously? If not, like, if not, I think most of us do. If not, I need to communicate to you that you need to. Because how hard you work and how hard you fulfill the purpose of where you're at is a reflection of Jesus Christ. We talked about it in men's group this week. Brandon did an amazing job with us men about communicating. Like, everything we do is worship. And how we work and how we treat people, and, and how we do our jobs is a reflection on Jesus Christ. But that's not my point. My point is, you know your purpose at work, and most of you know what it is, and you do it, and you're serious about it. But listen, one of the main purposes of your life, not your job, like why you were created, is to share the glory of God so that people might be saved. How seriously do you take it? How seriously do you take it? I said this before, but, but when I started, this is like a dozen years ago, maybe a little bit more now, I realized at some point, man, I don't take this seriously at all. I believe in God and I love him, but my faith is very much about me. So I, I literally started praying, God, and this was, at the time, this was really hard for me to pray. Like, I was nervous about this prayer. Are you ready for it? God, pe- put people in front of me that need to hear about who you are. Give me opportunities and then give me the strength not to be afraid, not to cop out because of my fear, and to open my mouth and talk about you. And I'm telling you, I started praying that all the time, and almost immediately, opportunities started happening. Almost immediately, things kind of came up, and before where the door would have been there, like the door I could have walked through, I just turned away from it and walked away as fast as I could. I just started taking like a small step into that door, right, a little further into the room. And more and more and more, I got to share my faith with other people, and now I'm a pastor, which is crazy. I'm not saying you all should be pastors, but as you know my past, I never wanted to be a pastor. That was never my goal. But I just started walking through the door, and God showed me where I was gifted and what I could do if I was just faithful to him, if I just lived in the purpose that he gave me. Church, this is your purpose. 
but we don't want to leave you alone. It's why we're going to have an evangelism and, and facilitation class, how to facilitate a conversation into evangelism this summer. We're going to do that again this summer. You know why? Because we want you to be able to communicate what you already know. You know what? If you're brand new to Freshwater, if you're new in this room today, I, might, I may not be talking to you. I, I might be. I may not be talking to you. But listen, you all know how to share the gospel. Do you know that? I've had people say to me, and I've heard people say, I'm not even sure I know what the gospel is or even how to communicate it. That is not true. Not if you've been coming to this church. Listen, here, let's just be simple. You don't have to call it out. Keep it to yourself. But if I was to say, hey, could you tell this person about what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross, what his blood, his blood meant to them on the cross? Do you think you could tell somebody that? I don't mean really well. I don't mean like I, I do when I preach every week for the last what, eight years? Of course you're not going to sound like me. I do this every single week. But do you think in your own way, maybe it wouldn't be great? Maybe it would be awesome. But do you think in your own way you could at least tell people about what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross? Do you think you could tell them that if they believe, not only will their sins be washed away because Jesus shed his blood for you on the cross to take your sins on the cross, but, that, but because he was resurrected, you can be resurrected too as a totally new person. The old person dies with Christ and the new person is raised with him. Do you think you could share that with someone? Of course you know the gospel. You know what Jesus Christ did for you. Most of you in this room, you could share the gospel. You're just afraid. And I totally understand that. I'm not going to stand up here and act like I don't. I used to be you. I used to want to turn and walk away when that conversation happened because I didn't know what to say. Listen, I knew what to say. I, was, I may not have been awesome at it, but I knew what to say. I was just afraid. I was afraid I wouldn't have all the answers. Do you think if you're having a conversation with someone about Jesus and they're genuinely wanting to talk to you? Listen, if you start the conversation and somebody just is like, uh-uh, they're not responding to you at all, their heart's not open, don't hammer them with it, right? But if you get in a dialogue with someone, they're actually talking, do you think the worst thing that you can say to them is, I don't know? If they ask a question you don't know the answer to? Like, no. There's humility in I don't know. You're not supposed to have all the answers. I haven't told this story in a long time, and I'm totally derailing right now, but I got time, right? But my sermon's shorter today. Do you know when I was in pharmaceutical sales, I had a doctor who knew everything. He was brilliant. And to be honest, he was intimidating. I don't get intimidated by a lot of people. He intimidated me. He's just brilliant and had an answer for everything. And so one day, early on, probably my first six months of calling on him, I went in and I was talking to him about my antipsychotic drug for bipolar and other things, and that's just a complicated thing, right? And I'm talking to him about it, and he starts hammering me with these questions about how it affects the body and this system and that system, and then how does it affect this and this value and this value, and I'm like, whoa. And I knew what he was doing. He was showing me, oh, no, no, son, I know way more than you about this. And he, he was right. He knew way more than me. I wasn't even going to challenge him. And you know what I said to him? you know what, sir, I don't, I don't know, but I'll find out for you. He's like, okay, you do that. And I went and found out. I came back the next day, and I started to tell him the answer. He's like, okay, I got it. And then he just smiled at me. He said, when are you coming back? I said, in two weeks. He's like, okay, I'll see you in two weeks. From that point on, our relationship changed. He gave me more time. He showed me respect, way more respect than he showed me before, and I wasn't intimidated by him anymore. Listen, saying I don't know to someone is not a bad thing. You don't have to have all the answers. Listen, Brandon and I don't have all the answers, right? You just say, I don't know. That's a good question, man. I want to know the answer to that too. Go Actually go find out the answer and then go back to him and start the conversation again. It's a new door for you to have a conversation about Jesus once again and get back in the conversation. Because in the end, the only thing that you really need to understand and you really need to know is who Jesus is, what he did, and what, who Jesus can be to them. Bring it back to the gospel because everything else is a smokescreen. Jesus saves, not great debates. You can do this, church. It's one of the main purposes in your life. And listen, do not give up on those family members. Do not give up on those friends who feel like lost causes. They aren't. And I know it's hard, and I know it's frustrating, and I know they frustrate you, but listen, unbelievers, sinners are going to act like unbelievers. They're going to act like sinners, aren't they? They don't believe what you believe. And so I say this all the time. This is humble. I'm not bragging, but I know that I can't save people. So, so many of your family members I pray for every day because I know some of you don't have the strength to keep praying for them. I'll pray for them. But I have a list of like, I think, 15 lost family members from our church, most of whom I don't even know, but I pray for them every day because God saves. It's the main purpose of our life. Don't give up. Don't give up. You can share the gospel. You can share the glory of God. And then finally, not only is our purpose to share about Jesus, 
But in the end, we're to bear the weight together so that when people are saved, they can be discipled into what it means to actually follow Jesus Christ because that's the hard part. We're not meant just to be evangelists, but to be disciplers, to be disciple makers, to train people to reflect the glory of God and of Jesus Christ. And this is, this is pretty good timing for us because you know that we're, we're getting close to appointing a new pastor, a new elder, Tony. And he's not here this week because he's got COVID. He's at home in bed, right? I wish he was here to hear this, right? But we take this really seriously, right? Because it's going to be the leader of our people and like to guard them spiritually, to protect them. That's the job of an elder, to shepherd our people well. Tony's been in the process for three years because it's a big deal. Because you know what? I'm not supposed to do this thing alone. I may planted this church with a team. I may be on the, the pastor that planted this church, but this church is not supposed to be about me. So we need to train up other people, train up other leaders, train up other men to preach and to lead so that we can all bear the weight together so that we can all be more than we could ever be alone. It's why we're in a, in a couple months, we're having another preaching symposium. If you're new to Freshwater, that's where people, that's where men who want to potentially be pastors, who tell us, man, I want to potentially be a teacher and a pastor, when they come to us, we have a preaching symposium when Brandon and I and a couple other pastors will sit there and they preach to us for 20 minutes in my basement and then we critique them. How intimidating would that be? It's intimidating, right? We try to be kind, but we're honest. It's intimidating. But why are we doing that? Because we want to take the, the call to train up other pastors, other leaders seriously so that we can all bear the way together so that we can all be more. And praise God, it looks like right now that we have at least four men that have said, yes, I want to do that preaching symposium. Four. It's fantastic, right? And there's a couple more that have said, man, I may want to do that someday, maybe even this next time. Man, that's exciting stuff. But listen, we're not all called to be pastors or teachers, are we? Right? That, that's not what this is about. We're all called to help the church and its people to be more than it could ever be without you. Like, listen, not even just us. You. There's the call on your life to help the church be more than it could ever be without you. And I'm saying, if you're 12 or 82, God can use your gifts. Like, Jack, I don't, I don't mean to pick on you, right? I don't talk about Jack unless I ask him. But, man, Jack's back there making coffee every single week for you guys, Right? He's, man, he may be a teenager, but he's still back there using his gifts so he can help the church be more, to help make sure that you all have coffee, can be relaxed, and have caffeine so you don't fall asleep when I'm preaching for 45 minutes. You all have gifts that are important to the church, and making coffee is an important gift. The fact that James, man, where is, is James in here? I don't see him. He's back over there. He, he's back there getting things ready, right? Man, if, if you don't know James, meet him and thank him. He stays after service every week to empty trashes and clean bathrooms and sweep up. Do you know that? Would you thank him? And maybe you could say, hey, James, maybe once or twice a month I could help you out. What, what, what days, what Sundays could I help you out? He doesn't ask for a thank you. He doesn't ask for any attention. But he's, oh, this is, I'm a servant. That's who James is. He's a servant. So every week he's emptying trashes. He's sweeping bathrooms. He's wiping up your guys' messes to show the love of God and help this church be more than it could be without him. Man, that, that's a big deal. What's your gift? Right? Attending church on Sunday morning is not church. We're, we're supposed to hear good preaching, but coming to hear a good sermon is not who we're meant to be. We're meant to be the church, not go to church. That's why the gathering of the saints is so important. Praise God that we have the streaming right now because we have like four or five people with COVID in our church right now and all their families are at home. Right? Praise God that they have that option in the world that we live in now. But that's not church. This is church. All of the saints learning to how to communicate the gospel, what Jesus Christ did for us, growing as saints, and then us bearing the weight together to lift us all up so we could be more than we could ever be without each other. We need each other. And this last year has shown us more than any other year how badly we need each other. Because this year has made us want to stay home more than ever, or has required us to stay home. And there's been so many terrible mental and spiritual and physical effects because of that. But staying home and being disconnected in some way makes us want to stay home and be disconnected more, even though we know that we need it. We know that we need to be together. We know that we need to be a part of something that's more than just about us and what we have to do in our daily lives. The enemy wants to keep you home. The enemy wants to keep you from engaging. The enemy wants to keep you from using your gifts because then you might grow, that you might really experience the joy of the Lord, and we might see real change. This is all pointing to this. This is where all of this is pointing to in Christ's church. Church, we are meant to be people about the glory of God in Jesus Christ, and we're not meant to just go to church, but be the church for the sake of others and for the sake of a lost world.
God has been laying the foundation. He's been whispering about the purpose of his church for 4,000 years. So my question is, where can you take your purpose to share God's glory and help others to grow into that glory more seriously? It's your purpose. Where can you take it more seriously? And hear me, this is not, uh, this is not what I want you to, to do today. I don't want you to think about the most holy person you know and compare yourselves to them. Look up to them and their faith. If it's true faith, look up to Jesus Christ first and foremost. But it's good to have mentors or people you look up to that love Jesus. What I want you to do today is not think about all the things that you're, you're just terrible, not good enough. No, that's, that's, not how, that's not even how the Bible communicates. Where can you take a step forward? Where can you seriously look at your life and think, man, I could share the gospel more and I could be more engaged in helping bear the burden of our church family so it can be more. Where can I take a step one step. We all have busy lives. If we try to go from two, if, if, if it was a scale of one to ten and you feel like you're a two on this, if you try to jump to nine, all you're going to feel is shame and guilt like you're not good enough, right? But where can you go from two to three? Where can I take one step forward in engaging in this more? Who's the one lost person I can pray for? Who, who's the person at work that I can pray that God would give me an opportunity, not only to show grace and patience and love to that probably doesn't deserve it, but can I start praying that God would not only save them, but maybe use me? Give me an opportunity to share it with them. And then praying about, I mean, there's just one thing I could take a step in in our church, if you're, if you're not already, to use my gifts, my talent, my time, my money, my resources, whatever it is, to help the church be more than it could ever be without me. Here's some real talk. I, I hope this is not just a sermon this week, but I, I pray that you'll actually think about it this week, that you'll talk about it with your spouse, your family this week that you'll talk about it in your life group or your discipleship relationships this week and actually think about, man, how can I take, for me, how can I take a step, just a step, to make the purpose of my life more serious? Church, not only if we live in the purpose of our life to tell people about Jesus and help them grow, will we give God glory and point people to Jesus? But as Jesus promises in some places like John 15, that his joy will be in us and our joy will be full because we'll actually be living the purpose that God created us for. I pray that you'll take it seriously this week. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I'm so, we are so grateful for your patience and your kindness and your grace and your mercy. God, without it, we'd just be absolutely lost. Because God, I know for most of us in this room, we know how undeserving we are to be forgiven once again, for you to show grace and mercy to us once again. God, I think most of us know how selfish and self-focused we can be at times, where you've called us to, man, pour out our lives for you and for others, and that, that our, our purpose is found there, our joy, our hope is found there, yet we still get so focused on ourselves. And so, God, I just pray for help. God, God, I pray that you would help us to just to worship you in our everyday lives. With everything that we do, we'd be thinking about ways to show you glory, to show people who you are, to reflect your character, to reflect, reflect your peace, your grace, your mercy. And so, God, if there's people in the room today that when I was talking that felt a conviction, and maybe even felt a conviction for a certain person, God, I pray that you would, you would grow their heart to reflect your heart for that family member, for that friend, for that coworker, for whoever it is, Maybe it's more than one person in their life that they know they should be praying for. They, they know they should be asking God to give them opportunities to share the gospel. God, I pray that you would, you would help them with that. Give them a desire for that. Draw, draw their hearts to your heart so that they can, that God, that they can have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. And then God, also, if, if there's people in this room that felt conviction about, man, just going to church but not really being in the church, God, I pray that you would, man, give them wisdom and guidance on where they could serve, where they could help, where they could, man, where they could help your church be more and that we take that, we would all take that seriously. But, but finally, God, I just pray that we could all look to your, your son, Jesus, and what he accomplished on the cross for all of us. That we don't have to worry anymore about being good enough for you, God, because Jesus, you were good enough for us on that cross. So we can lay down our sin, we can lay down our failure, we can lay down all of our apathy or whatever else, our self-focus, our self-worship, our eyes, we can lay them down at your cross. Man, be forgiven, take that weight off of our shoulders so that we can move forward in you to become more like you, Jesus, and spread your glory to the world. God, I pray you'd help us with that. And then finally, God, I just pray that you'd humble us before you.
Make us people of worship. Make us people humble. Make us people who submit to your will, to your way, and who actually obey you. And that our lives reflect your beautiful glory. God, thank you for this time with the church today. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.